Would you turn with me this morning to our sermon scripture in Exodus chapter 12? We'll read verses 21 to 30. In the New International Version, hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as a needy people, people who are overwhelmed with various things in our lives. For some of us, we've come this week with spring break on our minds, looking forward to a week of rest and a change of schedule. Father, others of us have come this morning with other things on our mind, perhaps uncertainty over our employment, wondering if there are going to be layoffs or cutbacks at our company. God, others of us bring uncertainty of financial insecurity, wondering how we're going to make this month's mortgage, wondering how we're going to put the meals on the table that we want to provide for our family. God, there are others of us who bring all kinds of unease this morning, and we recognize that we can deal with that unease through the person and work of Jesus. So, Father, I pray this morning that whatever condition we have come this morning, that we would be mindful of your presence, your power, and your work among us. Help us as we dive into the Passover, that we would come to understand this not as some historic ritual or some odd sacrifice, but help us to see that the Passover lamb is in fact the very meaning and significance of why we're here today. And Father, help us to find in the Passover lamb the relief for all our anxieties. Help us to find in Jesus Christ, your son, the forgiveness of our sins and the mercy of God that can only be found through Christ. And Father, we pray this morning that we would walk away with a better understanding of the Passover, but more than that, that we would come to a deeper appreciation for the mercy of God that has been shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us today, however we have come, to celebrate today to celebrate the work of your son, Jesus, on our behalf through his 
perfect life through his substitutionary death and through the power of his resurrection. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to turn your attention to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, where Easter really began. You see, we have just begun Palm Sunday today, and we're entering into the Holy Week that culminates on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. But before we do that, rather than focusing our attention on Jesus riding in on the donkey, as we sometimes do, or the other aspects of Palm Sunday, I want to return our attention to the Old Testament that gives us the context and the significance of what Jesus came to do. In in Exodus chapter 12, we have the people of God on the verge of leaving Egypt. Egypt was the country that had taken them to be slaves, but they didn't start that way. First, they were the honored guests of Joseph, the son of Jacob. And Joseph brought his father and his brothers into the land of Goshen outside of Egypt, and they were there because of a famine. And God used that to preserve and to protect his people. Yet over time, the people of Israel stayed in Goshen, and the people of Egypt enslaved them and turned them from shepherds out in the pastures, sort of off the back 40 and forgotten, into the slave economy that built the Egyptian empire. For 430 years, the people of God toiled and labored under various pharaohs with differing degrees of difficulty. And as we see in the book of Exodus early on, that difficulty had grown from bad to worse to almost insufferable. So God, recognizing that he had promised Abraham many generations before that he would deliver his people and that he would use his people to save all people, he intervened, and he interrupted the plans of Pharaoh, and he did it in the most unlikely way. You may remember Moses, God's man, the lawgiver as we sometimes think of him, a hero of the Bible and certainly affirmed in the New Testament. But do you remember Moses' upbringing? He was at first a boy who was in exile because Pharaoh had decreed that all the infant boys of the Hebrew people would be killed. So his mother stowed him away in a basket, pitched with tar, and sat at the side of a river among the reeds so that he would be hidden from sight. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, of all the people that could have discovered Moses, it was Pharaoh's daughter who happens to be bathing in the river, and with her attendants, they find this crying infant Moses, and they decide to save him. She must have known that her father's decree was to kill all of the Hebrew babies, and it could have been apparent that this was in fact a hidden baby and one that was destined to die, but the princess welcomed him in, into her home where she would raise him. In Pharaoh's court, think of the irony of him being raised alongside the man who had said he should die. Well, fast forward, Pharaoh has raised Moses in his home, and now Moses has received the best education that Egypt has to offer. Moses has also been given all the privileges of royalty being in Pharaoh's court, and yet Moses is still an Israelite. 
He still recognizes the plight of his people as slaves, those who are at the price of their own lives building the monuments to Pharaoh. So one day as Moses was out doing his work, he noticed there was an Egyptian taskmaster who was abusing a Hebrew slave. And it so enraged Moses that he murdered the Egyptian taskmaster. And as soon as he murdered him, he thought, what have I done? I've got to hide this before others discover it. So he puts the body in the sand and he thinks the matter's over. No one saw it. I protected my Hebrew brother and I eliminated this threat. And that is that. But that was not that. In fact, Moses was seen by other people. So much so that it got reported to Pharaoh himself, and Pharaoh wanted vengeance for Moses' murderous act, and he decreed that Moses should die. So this baby who had been born under a death sentence was now a man who was living under a death sentence. So he escaped. He left behind all the, the accoutrements and all the benefits of being Pharaoh's son, and he went to Midian where he would become a shepherd in exile. And he lived there for 40 years. He married a wife, he started a family, all the while wondering if Pharaoh would ever catch up with him. All the while wondering if his sin would find him. And yet, God came to Moses with a remarkable plan. At the beginning of Exodus, God comes to Moses in a burning bush. It's a bush that though it was on fire, was not being consumed, and it caught Moses' attention because of its unusual nature and what was happening. So Moses approaches the bush, and he encounters God. And God puts a call on Moses' life to return to Egypt to set free his Hebrew people, the Israelites. Imagine Moses' alarm, and you can see in the first chapters of Exodus why Moses argued with God because he knew that to return to Egypt was to return to a place where he could be killed. In fact, there was probably a bounty on his head among people that would have known him that they could have killed him on sight, or at the least brought him to Pharaoh's court where he would have been held to account. So Moses, in this interplay of arguing with God, finally relents and God directs him to go to Pharaoh and confront Pharaoh and basically say, It's time for the people of Israel to be free. Let the people of Israel out from under your captivity and let them go so they can worship the one true God. Well, obviously, this message didn't go down well, and God had prepared for that. He told Moses in advance, he said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to make this request, and guess what? He's not going to listen. In fact, he's going to reject you, he's going to despise you, and he's going to ignore you. But I will set my people free, and I will do so at the cost of the firstborn sons of Egypt. He says that in Exodus chapter 4 before any of this happened in Exodus chapter 12. And over the next several weeks, God sends Moses and his brother Aaron back to Pharaoh time and time again with plagues that he releases on the people of Egypt, and he spares the people of Israel. And as he releases these plagues, he's trying to get Moses, or he's trying to get Pharaoh's attention through Moses so that Pharaoh would release God's people. But it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, 
And then God hardened his heart against Pharaoh. What's sobering about all of this is that God was at work on behalf of his people, even when his people did not fully recognize it. You see, the people of Israel were busy trying to make bricks out of nothing because the main ingredients had been withheld from them. They had to go forage and scrape and scrap to get what they needed to build the, the materials that they were then required to install on the job sites where Pharaoh had assigned them. They were so busy and overwhelmed in the day-to-day -day responsibility that they failed to see that God had started a rescue plan that would liberate them for his own worship. You see, over 430 years of slavery, the people of Israel had grown distant from God. They had not walked with him as they ought, and they had not worshiped him as they should have. So God did something miraculous and divine to interrupt the status quo to bring them back to himself. And this brings us to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. That here we have already had nine plagues that have come against the people of Egypt. And now God is going to send one last plague. But this plague is going to be different than the others because it's going to be deeply personal. It's going to affect the firstborn of every household, every human, and every animal, he says. And what's more, this plague is not exclusively reserved for the Egyptians, but this plague is for all people because all people are sinners before God, and all people must have their sin accounted for. So as we come to this passage in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to see God work in a way that he forgives the sins of son, some, but judges the sins of others. As we prepare for Easter this Sunday, as we're at Palm Sunday, the Passover is a poignant reminder that God has prepared a way to forgive sins, but that way is only available through Jesus Christ, his son. God does not forgive sins based on what you think is right or what you think is wrong. He only forgives sins according to his divine plan. The fact is, all of us are sinners and have fallen short of his glory, which is another way of saying all of us have violated God's righteous requirements for life. We may fail in different ways, we may sin to different degrees, but sin is sin, and sin costs something. And in Exodus 12, we find that sin costs life. As Jesus was ministering to his disciples toward the end of his life, he invited them to a supper. We call it the Last Supper because it was the last meal that Jesus had with his closest followers. As he invited them in, you can read the accounts in Mark 14 and Luke 22 and in Matthew 26, Jesus brings these men close to him and he says something remarkable. He begins to start the Passover, which all of them had celebrated as good Jewish boys who were becoming men. There was no doubt they were familiar with this Passover celebration every year, but Jesus did something different. When he took the bread of the meal of Passover, he said, this bread is my body, and it's broken for you. You can tell the disciples didn't immediately grasp what Jesus was saying, because shortly thereafter, they're in an argument over who should have the seat of honor when he goes to heaven. 
But he was telling them that the bread that they were eating and they were accustomed to eating as a part of Passover was a symbol of the sacrifice that he was about to make by giving of his own body for their sins. He took it a step further by introducing the cup and saying, this wine is the blood of a new covenant. And you are going to drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus took the symbols that were familiar from Passover and he made those symbols into a reference to himself. He was essentially telling the disciples that he was the ultimate Passover lamb. That the lambs that had been sacrificed in Exodus 12 that we'll look at pale in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus made for his disciples and that Jesus makes for us. So the reason I want to focus our attention on Passover is because I want us to understand that Jesus is the one who forgives all of our sins. Now you might say, Nathan, that's great. That's a Sunday school 101. Like I got that in kindergarten. Well, sometimes we need to review the things that we have learned before. And sometimes the job of the preacher is not to be novel, creative, or imaginative, but the job of the preacher is to remind us of what we believe and why we believe it. So as we look at the Passover this morning, I'm not going to be exhaustive in what I will cover, but I want us to revisit why there was a Passover and what God was doing in this 10th plague between Egypt and Israel. As we look at the first few verses, beginning in verse number 21 of Exodus 12, we will see here that our sin requires a particular sacrifice. Our sin requires a particular sacrifice. Moses summoned the leaders of Israel, and he repeats to them what God has already told him in the first section of Exodus 12, the verses that Kyle did not read, verses 1 to 20. And as Moses is explaining this to them, he's just repeating God's instructions and saying, go at once and select an animal from your fam- or for your family and slaughter a Passover lamb. Now, this was quite the abrupt instruction. After the plagues had been directed to the Egyptians, the Israelites were used to hearing a report of what they had been spared from. But now Moses was coming and saying, we need to prepare for this next plague. This is not going to happen the same way that the other plagues happened. In fact, this one is going to require us to prepare a lamb. In the fifth plague, you might remember, God killed many of the livestock of the Egyptians, but it says he spared the livestock of Israel. Now, some of those livestock, some of those lambs or goats are going to be sacrificed as a reminder that sin costs something. Sin costs something. The yearling lamb that they would have to select would have to be one that was without blemish. This doesn't mean that there's a perfect animal. It just meant that this was their best animal and one that they were prepared to sacrifice for the sake of their lives. And Moses was instructing the people here, or the the elders, the leaders of Israel, to tell every family to estimate how much they would need for a meal and then to prepare accordingly by slaying the lamb that would provide for this meal. As they did this, this Passover lamb, as it's called, was called that because that lamb's life would signal to God to pass over their family and to relieve them of his judgment. 
In other words, God would not judge the families that prepared this lamb and put the blood across their doorposts, but instead he would give them mercy and grace. As Moses continued God's instructions, he gave them very specific details that they should take the hyssop, dip it in blood, and swipe it across the top of the door and the sides of the doors. And the scene in our 21st century sensibility is just as grotesque as it must have been in their time as well. Don't think that they were so barbaric that they took delight in the sacrifice and that putting blood on the door was a normal thing to do. This was a shocking thing to do. This was a troubling thing to do. And it was to show them the severity of sin, that it was not just the Egyptians who had been condemned by God, but it was all people apart from God's grace who are condemned. This is important because sometimes Christians or those who profess to be Christians become self-righteous and think, we're so much better than those people out there. And we talk about our culture in ways that are very self-righteous and critical and not helpful for the sake of evangelism. And yet God is instructing Moses to tell the leaders and their family and them to tell all the families that we're all sinners. We're all on the wrong side of God's judgment apart from sacrifice. So as the people did this, they were now to stay in their home once they made this sacrifice and not go out because God said he would strike the Egyptians at midnight in the middle of the night. And as he did this, the people of Israel must have been anxious as they prepared for what God was going to do. And yet, they didn't have to be scared. They could have been anxious, just wondering how it was all going to work out. Would it be like the other plagues where they were truly passed over, or would their families be affected? But as they lay there, God spared them if they had the blood on their doorposts. Look at verse number 23. It says, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the side of the door frames, and he will pass over that doorway and not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Passover affected the whole family. It wasn't simply the father or the uncles or the grandfathers that slaughtered these lambs and put this blood out, but everyone in the family would have been caught up in the drama of what was unfolding. Because it was not merely the sacrifice, but that lamb also provided meat for a meal that was accompanied with bitter herbs, and that was something that they shared together with unleavened bread and anticipation that God was about to do something and that they were about to leave. You see, the Israelites deserved judgment and death just as much as the Egyptians did. But God required the Israelites to smear the blood on their doorposts to cover their sin and guilt. And the Israelites needed a substitute to die in their place to avoid the judgment of God. And God ordained that it would be the blood of this slain lamb per his instructions, a slain lamb that would satisfy his wrath. Now, some object to this and say, this is grotesque. This is disgusting. What kind of God would do this? And I would say he is God and he gets to make the rules. But what's also interesting is even though in our modern sensibility, we deny this kind of barbaric behavior. Look at the way we entertain ourselves with barbarism. 
Look at the way we kill people senselessly through media, whether it's television, movies, or video games. Look at the way that overflows into life with all of these mass shootings and other disgusting things that happen in our culture and society. And yet people say they're not linked. They're linked by the sin that resides within our hearts that must be dealt with. And that sin, God says, can be dealt with here in Exodus 12 through the slaying of an innocent lamb. Note, too, that God is having them murder the most innocent animal in their herd. He's not telling them to kill that obnoxious animal. And you pick the obnoxious animal that you would be annoyed by, but He's saying, pick the innocent sheep that wanders haplessly around the pasture, that relies on the shepherd to protect them and guide them and to keep them in the fold and to feed them and care for them. That is the one that will have to be sacrificed. The one who is the least deserving of murder would be the one who would be killed so that others could live. On the basis of the blood sacrifice of the lamb, and only on that basis did the destroyer distinguish between Israel and Egypt. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians had sinned against God. Both of them deserved punishment for their sins. Yet God had ordained an escape for Israel, and the escape was through a sacrifice, but a very particular sacrifice. Notice the details here are not given so that we can imagine incredible symbols, but the details are given to say that God has a particular way of doing things. That the atonement of sin is not choose your own adventure and do it the way that makes sense to you, but we do it according to what God has prescribed. God ordains a particular sacrifice for sin and he defines what that is. And it's not our good works. It's not our moral self-reformation. It's not hard work. It's not our time or our money. It's not the sacrifices that we choose to make. It's not even the guilt or shame that riddle our consciences. Only the sacrifice of a perfect lamb can forgive our sins. And to skip ahead for just a moment, that perfect lamb is going to be found to be Jesus. But in this context, the lamb, a real actual lamb, had to be slain to protect the home from the destroyer. And this was to point people to God and their dependence on him. Well, our sin requires a particular sacrifice, and that sacrifice is designed to point us to the Lord. The sacrifice requires obedience. Look in verse number 24. Moses said, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. Moses doesn't say, Do this if it's convenient, or if you feel like it, or if you're around when it it's time for it to happen. He doesn't say, do this if it suits your sensibility and if it's something that you'd like to do. He also doesn't say, you can come up with an alternative if you think there's a better idea of how to do it. No, he says, obey these instructions. Do exactly as I say, and it is going to be a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. This ceremony was going to highlight God's covenant faithfulness and his merciful grace to the Israelites from one generation to the next and the next and the next until we ultimately get to Christ. 
This consecration was also reminding God's people that they needed a substitutionary sacrifice, not a sacrifice of convenience or a sacrifice that suited someone else, but a sacrifice that pleased God himself. God is the one who designed the Passover, and he designed it as an annual celebration from this point forward as a reminder of their dependence on him. It was God who had set them free from Egypt. In fact, after the destroyer comes, what's interesting is it doesn't even talk about the houses of Israel being spared. Beginning in verse number 31 of chapter 12, it just says they left Egypt and the Egyptians gladly sent them with their money and resources and basically said, go, go, go. God was working to show the people of Israel his incredible mercy where they deserved justice. But this mercy was on the basis of a sacrifice that he instructed them to do. And at the end of the passage, it says that the Israelites in verse number 28 did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they were obedient to fulfill the requirements that God had laid out, and God was faithful to pardon them and pass over them as he had promised. These sacrifices not only served the immediate benefit of sparing their firstborn children, but these sacrifices also instructed their children of God's faithfulness for generations. God anticipated this. So in verse number 26, Moses said this, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. God used everything as a teaching opportunity to point people to himself. He knew that this particular sacrifice would raise questions and the repeated celebration of Passover, even after they left Egypt, would make children say, why mom, why dad? What is this that we're doing? And why every year? And Moses instructed the people to use this to teach their children of their dependence on God. That their dependence was not merely on themselves, their dependence was not on anything that they had accomplished, but their dependence was on God who spared them and judged the Egyptians. What stands out about this instruction is that the people of God responded not with simple duty or bewilderment, but they responded with awe and worship. Look at the end of verse number 27. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Passover points to the Lord's mercy, and Passover was celebrated over and over again because we continue to sin and need God's mercy. As you think about this ritual that the Israelites would practice for generations and ultimately it culminates in Christ, it does raise a question. And the question is, what are we doing that impacts our children? What we do and won't, what we don't do affect our children more than we realize. So what kind of rituals are we observing that are marking our children for the rest of their life? I'm not arguing for rituals in the sense that we need to start celebrating Passover again. And I don't want the Lord's table to become a ritual. But there are patterns of a Christian life that should be noticed by your family, those who live with you day in and day out. 
Do your children know that you read the Bible and pray? Or do they simply know that you're addicted to your phone, whatever's on the phone at that time? Do your children know why you attend church and serve in the church? And do your children know why we celebrate communion? Do you prepare your family for the first Sunday of the month, which is our church's pattern of receiving the elements of communion? You see, there are little ways and big ways that we shape the lives of those we're responsible for. More often than not, we think of the big ways. We think of, well, I want to position my kid for success. I want to help them make good grades. I want to get them in the right extracurriculars so they can go to the right college and get on the right career path and work for the right company and make good money so they can retire and on and on it goes. But what about the little things? What about the faithful things that we often don't think about? Simple things like I try to instill in my kids, not always successfully, is we try to get up on time on Sunday morning because it's important. That means we try to go to bed on time on Saturday night because Sunday morning is important. And I tell my kids that. Little decisions we make have a big impact over time. And the people of God were to celebrate Passover year after year after year to long for and anticipate God's mercy to be fresh and renewed in their lives. If we devote all of our time to our work, what are we telling our kids? If we devote all of our time to extracurricular activities, what are we communicating to them? And if we spend all of our free time consumed with mindless entertainment, what are we telling our children? Is the Easter bunny more important or is Jesus more important? I'm not anti-Easter bunny, but I will say he gets a lot more time this, around this time of year than Jesus does, it seems. And I would encourage you, rather than just delving into all things uh, Easter bunny, look up series, and this is for parents with younger children, but there's a series called What's in the Bible by Phil Vischer, the guy who did Veggie Tales. He had an aha moment after he lost control of VeggieTales, and he said, I was creating content that was fun, it was enjoyable, it was even memorable, but it did not point them clearly to Jesus. So his next project was called What's in the Bible, and you can get it online. And he said, my goal here is to be fun and memorable and enjoyable, but to teach people the Bible and about Jesus. And he's got a great video that you can find on YouTube about what is the atonement and what is the meaning of the resurrection. I would strongly encourage you to look those up. The point in all of this is to say, what we do instructs our children and we should instruct our children that their sin requires a sacrifice. And that that sacrifice points us to the Lord and the Lord, thirdly, holds us accountable for our sin. The Lord holds us accountable for our sin. Beginning in verse number 29, we see that you can pay for your sin one of two ways. The first way is you can pay for your sin yourself. In 29, it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. That's a sobering passage. 
to hear that there was no family untouched by death in Egypt. Whether it was a prisoner or the prince of the land, all had been touched by this plague of death. And all had been torn to bits by it. Because it says here there was wailing in Egypt. Can you imagine in the darkness at midnight as people are waking up to the reality that their oldest child or that some of their animals have just suddenly died? The wailing must have been overbearing. I don't know about you, but I've been around people when they've lost a loved one, especially during a tragic accident, and the crying is very emotional and very effective, and it's one that you get caught up in the crying too because it's so palpable. You can feel the pain that the person is going through. And sometimes they'll stop them themselves and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so, I don't mean this. And I normally say as a pastor, let it out, it's okay. Like cry, this hurts, this is hard. And every household in Egypt was going through that and the sound in the land must have been terrifying to hear all of that moaning and wailing and longing for escape. Yet there was no escape because the Egyptians were paying for their sin themselves. They had, their sin was being dealt with at the cost of their sons' lives, but that would not be the end because their sons were not atoning sacrifices. Their sons would not prevent their own deaths because one day they too would die. Meanwhile, among the Israelites, in chapter 11, it said, God promised, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any animal or person. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Tim Chester observes this. He said, in every home throughout Egypt and Goshen, the death count is the same. The following morning, there is a corpse. The only question is, is the corpse a lamb or is the corpse a child who has died? You see, the Egyptians paid for their own sin, but God offers another way. Through Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, he offers to pay our sin for us. So rather than pay for our own sin, we can receive mercy through Jesus. Paul says it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The author of Hebrews puts it another way by saying, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. The idea is that the Bible presents Jesus Christ as the ultimate Passover lamb. Throughout the New Testament, different authors make the same connection between the Passover and Jesus' death. God placed his divine judgment on the slain lamb of God instead of the firstborn of Israel. Similarly, Jesus died a substitutionary death for the sins of God's people. God takes your place through Jesus. John in his gospel, when he first meets Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew that the man, Jesus, that he had witnessed was not merely a cousin, but this was the Savior of mankind. Peter also recognized it because Peter had denied Jesus and then been restored by his incredible grace. And this is what he said. Peter says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter is making the same point as John, and that is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who deals with sin once for all. So rather than paying for our sin ourselves, we can put our sin on Christ, and Christ takes our sin and satisfies the wrath of God that is due us. Paul said it this way, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's finished. It is done, to use Jesus' own words. Atonement has been made for our sin through his shed blood. When you fast forward to the book of Revelation, where Brandon started us this morning with our call to worship, we see a lamb, one who appears to be slain, standing before the throne of God and Angels are declaring, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is the lamb who brings salvation. Worthy to receive honor and glory. You see, when we depend on Christ to forgive our sins, God gets glory for that. And God deserves all the glory and all the honor because he is God. We may not like the way Passover is set up. We may cringe at the thought of killing an innocent sheep and splattering its blood across our doors, and fortunately, we don't have to do that today. We also may cringe at the thought of Jesus coming, this incredible teacher, one who even non-Christians recognize must have been a historical figure, but we cringe at the thought of him dying and then being crucified in such a grotesque way, and that his blood was splattered from the cross. And yet, this is the way God has ordained for us to be forgiven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain for our sins, Jesus says. Tim Chester concludes this thought by saying, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed as our substitute. We all deserve to die because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus has died in our place. His blood is, as it were, daubed over our lives so that God will pass over us when he comes in judgment. As a result, we are redeemed. And we're redeemed from death. We're redeemed from our sin if we put our faith in Jesus. So Exodus 12, where the Passover begins, is a passage that shows us the way of God's mercy. And his mercy comes through a sacrifice that he ordained. And that sacrifice of the original Passover that they repeatedly remembered year after year with the meal pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ, the final Passover lamb, the only one who could completely remove the sins of all people who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus. So as we enter into this week of We might say spring break, but we could say Holy Week between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. What is your priority this week? Is your priority just to have rest, relaxation, and fun? You can certainly have those, and I hope that you do. But do you have something more, something bigger? Is your priority to be right with God? Because in the Passover, we have access to God and a way to be right with him and that is through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So stop killing yourself to make peace with God and accept the death of Christ who gives you the peace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we commit this to you, 
We ask that you would bless our hearts and minds as we lean into the gospel of Christ. Father, we admit that we want to atone for our own sin in one way or another. We sense that something's broken and wrong in our hearts, and we look for all kinds of solutions apart from Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would draw us back to Jesus, that we would see in the Passover the mercy of God that has been given us. And God, help us to celebrate this mercy. Help us, as I said, to stop killing ourselves to be right with you. And instead, help us to accept the death that Jesus died so that we might have life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.